G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. We're going to turn our attention to freedom of speech on university campuses and an example today of one campus encouraging a model where Christian views are welcome but not privileged. For centuries, universities have been at the forefront of the battle for minds and control of the narrative. For generations, universities were bastions of free speech, where the battle for ideas shaped policy and future leaders. So how do Christians influence and engage the battle of ideas and a fast-changing cultural and sexual revolution setting new trends shaping the future? Well, our special guest this hour is Dr. Gordon Menzies. He's known as a public intellectual, an associate professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, with an international research reputation and a PhD from Oxford University. He's also a former economist at the Reserve Bank of Australia and a visiting scholar at Robert Menzies College in Sydney. Back in 2021, he published his book, Western Fundamentalism, Democracy, Sex and the Liberation of Mankind. And his views are always welcome here on 2020. A special welcome back to 2020 to you, Gordon Menzies. Thank you, Neil. Hey, Gordon, I know we're going to talk about university campuses and you're across two. I mentioned the University of Technology, Sydney. And I mentioned another one, Robert Menzies College, also in Sydney. Uh, Give us an insight here, because a lot of listeners might not know Robert Menzies College, uh, part of an Anglican church, uh, higher education, tertiary level. Uh, Give us an insight here into Robert Menzies College, because you're a visiting uh, scholar there. What does that all mean? Yeah, thanks. Um, Robert Menzies College is a residential college. It's not a university in itself. It's actually part of Macquarie University, which is in the north um, west of Sydney. So it's a residential college with about 300 students. As you said, it's owned by the Anglican Church. Um, and so um, they have the board of that college has an interest in uh, both promoting the gospel and promoting Christian values. Uh, there are about 300 students from about 40 countries. And um, so there's a huge variety of people there. It's actually one of the only two uh, colleges in Sydney that's a dry college. So a shout out to New College, which is the other one. Um, And um, that just um, does tend to attract a certain sort of student, uh, perhaps with uh, parents with a religious background who want them to go to a dry college. Um, And it also leads to a certain atmosphere. So uh, there tends to not be as much... um, raucous behaviour. Now, when you've got a dry college, and uh, we'll know that you know there is division even in Christian circles as to whether you should be drinking or not drinking, uh, and there are other world religions uh, that certainly do outlaw drinking alcohol, and as a Christian college, uh, you're saying 
it attracts students from a variety of religious experience. And does that mean that mm. international parents who have teenagers, they want to send them to Australia for an education, are actually looking at Menzies College and saying, I think we'll send our Muslim son or daughter to a Christian college in Australia. Is that the way it sort of works? Yeah, I think some of I think that's right. So there are people, as you know, in the general community, this is true as well. There are some people who uh, admire Christian values, even if they don't necessarily have Christian beliefs. And so there would be some uh, parents who would be attracted by the idea of a, a dry college. Um, yeah, so that's I think that's how that works sometimes. But we have a, we have ordinary Australian students as well. Uh, the college is quite careful to make sure that it picks the variety of nationalities that it can. Uh, so that makes for a very interesting experience. And no doubt uh, the debates at this college level are when you get a group of students, and some of them are coming from Christian backgrounds, uh, some are coming from maybe a Muslim background, you might have other religions, you might have Hindus or Buddhists or people like that uh, who are probably in the minority, but they're there in the college and there's an encouragement for open discussion and debate around the sorts of things that are engulfing our culture. Is that the way you'd sort of, you know, and you're a part of some of the creation of those conversations? Yeah, so I think, uh, Neil, that operates on a personal level and a more um, uh, activity-based level. So on a personal level, our uh, Dean of Residence, Rebecca Louis, is always fond of saying that what people really need in life is to be known and to be loved. And um, one of the things about being known is that for a really good friendship, you have to get past just all the things you agree on, that you have to be able to talk about things you don't agree on as well. And so on a personal level, um, she as the dean would encourage students to be open about their different beliefs, um, uh, whether they're religious beliefs or beliefs about social issues. And then when um, disagreements come up, as they sometimes will, to try and learn to relate to people in such a way as to really understand where they're coming from. That doesn't mean you agree with them, but... Um, you know, tolerance is a cheap virtue if it's only applied to things that people agree on or only disagree on in a minor way. It's only a real virtue when you face someone who has quite different ideas and you can treat them civilly. So that's on a personal level. That's how we encourage our students uh, to deal with each other relationally in love and truth, which is a Christian value, even if the people don't have Christian beliefs. Um, on a more of a, a group discussion level, I run uh, something called the Socratic Club, and the purpose of that is to um, bring students together to talk about any issue that they want to, and as you uh, put it in the opening, it's a place where any view, including Christian views, are welcome, but they're not privileged. So when you express a view uh, from any perspective at all, you do so on the understanding that if someone disagrees with you, it doesn't mean that they hate you. Uh, it just means that they disagree with you and you can actually talk about it. And I imagine uh, that's the encouragement that says if you're going to argue a position in a debate, uh, you have to be well prepared. And, uh, you know, for mm. Christians, uh, we will often recognise that we've got very, very strong arguments. Uh, we don't have to be ashamed of 
who we are and the arguments that we can have uh, theologically and philosophically around any of the debate topics today. So uh, there's this not ashamedness of uh, being able to be involved in a, a conversation, even if it gets to be a robust conversation. Hey, but let me ask you, Gordon, because uh, you've got a foot in two camps in some sense here, because you're also an associate professor at the University of Technology in Sydney. When mm. you've got this sort of arrangement within a uh, a Christian-founded uh, uh, educational facility, how does it work in the secular facility? Or because that's where I guess where the the major issues are, uh, where people will feel like sometimes the Christian side is shut down in debate. Uh, thoughts here from you on on secular versus Christian? Um, I think if you're dealing in a secular area and you're relating to people who are secular um there's a the wonderful um doctrine of um carrying god into all of your life uh has an implication there which is very helpful so for me as an academic it's important for me to put god first in all that i do and that includes in my scholarly work in my discipline so um in some of the research that i do i think about christian perspectives i Put them in my papers as far as I can. Um, it's not easy to get published when you put those things in papers, but I put them in as far as I can. And so conversations about God and about Christianity turn up quite naturally. I have found, Neil, that if there's a relational trust and warmth with somebody, even if they think very, very differently to you, um, you can get away with things. Uh, you know, you can take some risks that you can't, that are harder to take otherwise. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, just after the plebiscite on same-sex marriage, um, a card went around for um, a colleague of mine, a woman who was marrying a woman after the plebiscite was passed. And uh, I didn't feel I could sign the card because I didn't actually agree with same-sex marriage. But what I did was I wrote her my own card and um, I said to her that... Um, uh, you know, I acknowledge that in there have been times in Christian history when Christians have joined in um, mistreatment of homosexuals. I acknowledge that we would have voted differently in the plebiscite, um, but I wish to all the best for the future without congratulating her for getting married because I didn't think I could do that. And um, that was one of the scariest things I've ever done, I think, uh, because it could have gone very badly, but it didn't. Uh, she came to my office. She was deeply moved, gave me a hug. And uh, we, but we were friends. We had related well together in the office, and I think that that's uh, that's an important thing to aspire to in any environment. As you say, it could have gone dreadfully wrong, and uh, I know mm. listeners will have caught your wonderful piece of wisdom in that whole uh, description of what happened. Then trust and warmth is what you had been developing in the relationship. And so when it mm. came time to showing your true colours on whatever issue that might have been, in this case around a same-sex marriage, the trust and warmth allowed you to be able to speak with that trust and warmth as a virtue into the situation and perhaps even diffused what might have been a uh, an angry, militant response that you might have got from either the woman or from the people that she might have told about your response. So this trust mm. and warmth, this is very powerful. Yeah, I think uh, when 
Jesus said we're to love our enemies. Uh, surely it's not too much of a stretch to love the people that we disagree with, who, who may or may not be our enemies. Um, so I think um, the love your enemies sets a high bar and, and virtually everything we do in life can is is less of an ask than that. So um, so I think uh, that's just a general virtue. It doesn't have anything to do with academic uh, with academia. It's just a general part of your walk with God, really. Mm. And Gordon, you're in these situations, uh, one a secular university, one a Christian uh, higher learning uh, college, uh, but you've got your colours well and truly on your sleeve. When you write books, uh, there's something there in a level of permanence, and your book on Western fundamentalism, uh, which was shortlisted as an Australian Christian Book of the Year award uh, just uh, just last year, uh, but it's uh, it's about democracy and sex and the liberation of mankind, and it's flavoured by your own Christian values in all of that. So so you do wear your colours on your sleeve in that sense of uh, what I talk about and what I teach is Christian. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think um, loyalty to Christ should trump everything uh, as, as a Christian. So um, whatever, anything else like that, um, what God really wants is a, a heart of loyalty. Mm. And so when you've got the secular versus the Christian, uh, and uh, but also in the other sense when you've got the pluralistic environment where you've got uh, inter-religious dialogue, the same sorts of values, mm. and, and these things are a part of our Christianity, aren't they? Uh, there's a certain sense... When we understand Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, that doesn't mean that it's a position of weakness. There actually is something mm. very, uh, you know, very proactive in that uh, in that uh, opportunity that uh, that Jesus says in turning the other cheek. Mm. Mm. I heard a wonderful sermon once about um, um, Jesus in John's gospel when he was before Pilate. You know, there he was, a powerless prisoner. And yet when you read the narrative, it's clear that he's in control. So humility um, and turning the other cheek doesn't mean um, uh, giving away agency uh, at all. Uh, and, um, you know, speaking the truth in love, um, part of the thing about love is it chooses when to speak and when to remain silent, as Jesus did when he was hauled before Herod. He didn't say anything. And sometimes there's a time for speaking and sometimes there's a time for, for not speaking. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, it is it is. I think God will reward people who are loyal. And uh, I think um, I heard a, a wonderful uh, saying by John Dixon one John Dixon once, which is that we should live lives worth questioning, and then have answers ready when people ask the questions. And I think that's a great that's a great quote. I'm reminded of uh, that uh, beatitude: "Blessed are the meek." for they will inherit the earth. And sometimes meekness is mistaken for weakness. So as a Christian, when you find yourself in vulnerable circumstances in the middle of a debate, and you might not even be so sure of yourself, uh, meekness here is a very powerful uh, virtue to be able to display. Uh, and uh, even as you're mm. saying, I mean, as you're mentioning the John Dixon quote, it's a, it's a little bit about meekness there, isn't it? It's about uh, not being too quick to uh, get into an argument, but when someone approaches you, you've got to have an answer. Yeah, and I think um, 
as it says in Ephesians about being completely humble and gentle. I think that's important too. And I think one of the greatest compliments you can do someone, uh, you can give someone, is to really try and understand them properly. Uh, and this especially applies to people who think very differently to you, because sometimes it's hard to understand people who think very differently to you. So I had one um, amusing situation in the Socratic Club. Uh, students come up and ask me to discuss something. And so a uh, student who I believe is not a Christian, a female student came up and said she wanted to discuss abortion. And this is after the overturning of the um, uh, Roe versus Wade decision in, in the US. Uh, I presume that she wanted to speak in favour of abortion on demand. So because all views are um, welcome but not privileged, I said sure. And uh, we arranged for the Socratic Club to talk about that. A lot of people came along. But at the last minute, she pulled out because she was sick. So it was then left to me to uh, to run this discussion, uh, which was incredibly difficult. Um, so I prayed, uh, I scrambled the prayer together and um, came up with the following idea. I got them all to fill out a questionnaire about um, really a pro-life questionnaire. So it was both about euthanasia and abortion. And high school meant that you were very prepared to intervene to end people's lives, either in end of life or uh, prepared to have late-term abortions. And a low school meant that you were very conservative about both of those things. So I got people to fill out the questionnaire and they all got their own score. And then they lined up in a line from the lowest to the highest. So most of the Christians were at one end at the low end and a lot of other people were at the high end. And then the task was to find somebody at the other end of the line, so find someone with a completely different view to you, and then work out what you would have to change about your deep beliefs to agree with the other person. So the task was to work out what it is about your deep beliefs that drives your detailed opinions. So in the, in the case of uh, the abortion debate, um, it would be that personhood is a gift from God and it starts in conception. That would be something that if I were to agree with abortion and demand, I would have to give up that belief. Now, what the purpose of the line wasn't to get people to give up their beliefs. It was simply to understand the other people. And to my amazement, and I'm very grateful to God for this, the discussion was wonderful. You know, I heard men and women talking with very different views, uh, people who were had a score of 15, which is the highest score you could get, people talking to people with a score of one. Um, and so um, what, what I like to say is that when you're in a conversation that's going badly about detailed opinions, it's a bit like driving, Neil. You can either, you're going along and your car's not doing too well, you can either put your foot harder on the accelerator and hope that you get there, or you can pull off to the side and look under the bonnet. Now, in arguments that are not going well, a lot of people put their foot harder on the accelerator. They just get louder and more aggressive and hope that they'll win by virtual force. But another alternative is to look under the bonnet and think about what deep beliefs you have that drive your detailed opinions. That's really what my book is about, Western Fundamentalism. I'm going to ask you, if a Socratic club uh, where everyone gets an opportunity to air their views and no one's especially privileged, uh, could that work just as well in a secular university campus as it does on one that has a religious foundation? Yeah, that's a great question, Neil. Thanks. Um, 
the idea of the Socratic Club is not actually original to me. It's named after the very thing you're talking about um, at a secular university, which was Oxford University. So in the 1950s, I believe it was, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, uh, the English writer C.S. Lewis uh, was approached by some people who wanted to have a forum to discuss uh, issues in philosophy and religion uh, where there could be completely open debate. And so that's where the, the club started. Um, now, that was, in a, of course, in a different era um, and in a different country. Um, but it does show you that uh, the principles could be applied to another place. And there's, there's really no reasonable way to object to a meeting of people where anybody can express their view uh, on the understanding that it may be challenged. It's not a privileged view. It is there to be debated. You don't have to express your view if you don't want to debate it or if you don't want to be vulnerable in that way. You just don't express your view. But if you do do it in that group, it's on the understanding that anyone can say anything about it. It's hard to object to that, I think, um, in any kind of reasonable way. When you say uh, things get out of control uh, and someone starts getting loud and uh, they become boisterous, uh, they become threatening, uh, name-calling, uh, we have cancel culture to deal with and maybe there's uh, all sorts of differences in some of those things that I'm mentioning now, but uh, there's a certain level of trepidation or some level of anxiousness uh, about when you're going to speak up uh, in a group that might well start to howl you down and call you names. Does that, is that something that you've seen? Have you experienced any of that? Um, and I'm sure that's not happening in a Socratic club, but, uh, but what, are your, what are your thoughts here of, of when things get out of control? Is it because there's not an adequate ref, referee for that sort of conversation? Yeah, I think you might be right, Neil. I think that you do need referees for conversations. And the reason that that hasn't happened in the Socratic Club, um, I'm just trying to think back, has it ever been? No, I don't think so. I think people have expressed quite strident views. And the only thing I've noticed is that when people get really excited about a topic, they won't stop talking about it and you have to actually stop them talking. Um, but I've not noticed people getting rude. But I think that's because there is a referee there. I'm, I'm the referee. Um, and I think that's one of, the, one of the difficulties of completely unstructured conversation. And uh, it, it gets, as you would know, it gets worse online because there's something about human nature that when you're on a social media platform, you feel you can say things that you wouldn't say to someone to their face. And so, um, uh, yeah, um, probably there is a need for structure. There is a need for referees um, uh, because otherwise things can get very hostile. Mm. Is the battle for truth uh, likely to be fought out in, uh, you know, well, we hope it'll be, uh, you know, without, uh, you know, coming to blows or bloodshed. But is this battle for truth something that we need to perhaps even be more prepared for into the future, knowing that there will be robust conversations and the ability for people to find truth oftentimes happens in the fieriness of the debate uh, rather than just uh, being quiet and accepting what you might have to say as a Christian. Is this something you think of as Christians needing to actually steel themselves a little, get a thicker skin perhaps, and be able to stand and debate some of these issues? 
Oh, that's a that's an excellent point, Neil. I mean, we're we have been blessed with well thousands of years really of cultural privilege where we've been seen as a sort of um, Christians that is in the West have been seen as having um, a role in guiding the morality of the general society. Now that time has gone, or it's rapidly going, and um, uh, how should we feel about that? Well. On the one hand, because we love people and because the truth frees people, uh, both in public policy and in, in their relationship with God, if they have one, because that's true, it, it's, it's hard to be too critical of that time, but it has gone. And the question is, can we make um, something of this new time? And I think we can, because Jesus never promised us that we'd be in a privileged position in society or that our freedom of speech would be protected. He never promised us those things. So we have to operate in the environment we're given. I think it is valuable to um, to uh, claim free speech rights uh, because it's good for everybody that you can do that. Um, and I think going into the future, right, I think the battle for truth, um, Christians will have to be uh, more prepared to be open about their beliefs and accept some negative consequences. I think we're actually uh, in a wonderful position as Christians at the moment because Christianity is unpopular enough that people don't join up to a church to get social standing. It's not, you know, as it were, good for business to be a Christian. It's actually regarded as a bit odd or out of step with society in many quarters. So Christianity is not a popular option for people to use it. Um, but on the other hand, the degree of resistance we face is far less than what's happened in other countries and through history. So we do have some freedom to speak, um, but we don't, we're not burdened with people trying to use God or use Christianity to get social standing. So I think that's a really positive thing. Let me ask you, Gordon, uh, this issue of cancel culture, this has become very significant and it's, uh, you know, it's used as a weapon to silence opposition. Uh, what do you think about Christians and the way we think about cancel culture? Um, I think we're at an interesting moment in society because on the one hand, there's this idea that uh, you do you, that's to say, you know, do whatever you want. But on the other hand, if someone missteps and does something which is seen to be out of um, step or with contemporary morality, some of which we would agree with as Christians and some of which we wouldn't, um, then you're cancelled and treated quite harshly. And um, this sort of need for both... Um, justice uh, but also a kind of latitude is something that that we understand as christians as christians we we see the need for justice and the need for latitude or mercy combined in the cross of christ so we have a we have a um i guess a model or a way of thinking about these things uh which can we could we can use in whatever situation we're in so if we meet someone who's been um who's had their reputation ruined we can bring Christ to them on that basis. And um, uh, we can also um, uh, try and speak the truth in love and, uh, and speak real truth about uh, real moral absolutes which, which are part of life, uh, part of the order that God's created. So, so I think um, uh, we have the tools to walk into this space. Of course, the fear of being cancelled is, uh, is an unpleasant thing. And... Um, Ultimately, you have to trust God for 
for the outcomes in life. He really is after faithfulness, the outcomes of his business. Well, a wonderful dimension that you bring out when you say if cancel culture is happening in your context, uh, as a Christian, you've got you've got two opportunities, not just one, because mm. you've actually got drawing alongside the victims uh, and being a comfort to them uh, so that they are not uh, completely crushed uh, in the cancel culture. But also, you've got this engagement with the activists. So you've got, uh, you know, you can choose your side here. Some are going to be really pastorally caring, aren't they, in care for a victim. Uh, Others are going to be a little bit more robust in their ability to be able to make an argument uh, with the activists. But here's here's one that takes you into a little bit of a deeper dimension because it's all very well to have a cancel culture amongst students. But a lot of people will say the cancel culture is happening amongst the lecturers, against the people who are, uh, who are uh, you know, in control of the thought of a university. What happens when the radicalism shifts from the student to the administration of the university? How do you describe what might be happening and, and what you might do about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation, Neil. Um, so... Several a number of decades ago in the 60s and 70s, universities were famous for having um, radical student protests, and so the the sort of source of the radicalism came from the students themselves. Now, by the time I started teaching at a university, which is in the early 2000s, I remember asking my students, "Has anybody been to a protest?" And only one girl from Germany <laughs> put up her hand. Nobody else had. So the, the mood had completely changed, and so universities were not very radical places. But in more recent decades, um, I think it is a feature that um, you see universities taking stands on particular issues. And um, in a sense, the radicalism has shifted from the university administrations, I mean, the radicalism has shifted from the students to the, to the university administration. The university is is sometimes marketed as a place where students can come and find their people, you know, whatever group they're in or whatever identity they have. Um, but uh, it's it's fairly siloed. Uh, you have just different groups in university doing their thing. Uh, but you sometimes find that the university takes positions on particular issues. And as an academic, um, I feel as though uh, there is still a remnant of a culture of free speech. So I don't want to exaggerate um, how difficult that is. Uh, Some universities make a distinction between academic freedom and free speech. Academic freedom is the freedom to talk, say whatever you like in your area, whereas free speech is freedom to say anything about anything. And there's a bit of a debate about that. But, um, yeah, I um, I think that there are a number of people who um, who try and control dialogue at universities. It's not just students. What do you think of uh, sometimes those Christian uh, campus organisations? And I'm just thinking of, uh, in Australia, they're called Power to Change. Around the world, you've got organisations like Campus Crusade for Christ, and one of the biggest mission organisations in the world. Uh, and really, they've got presence on university campuses, and uh, they're gospel-oriented 
Do they have a role to play in um, in perhaps, all, I guess, the pastoral care side, but also uh, the pursuit of you know getting involved in the arguments for truth? Uh, what do, what are your experience, and and have you had any experience with with those sorts of on campus Christian groups? Yes, yeah, so I have. I've, I'm involved in um, one of those groups called uh, the AFES Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, and uh, what. I think it, it depends a little bit on people's giftings, uh, Neil. So um, some people are more gifted to uh, bring the gospel directly to people, and that tends to be the focus of those groups, because, or at least the groups I know of, um, because the thought is that if someone becomes a Christian, uh, the whole perspective changes, and, and that in itself is an act of radicalism. <laughs> That's a way of um, uh, radicalizing the world in a good way. Um, bring, helping bring the kingdom of God. But uh, other people um, don't focus on that so directly and they focus more on discussing social issues. Um, and I think it depends a bit on your gifting. I've found myself in both positions um, and, uh, and I've enjoyed that. But I recognise that people are gifted in different ways. And it's probably a good thing to think about is, is where your gifts lie in this kind of an area. I think if you if you are going to speak on social issues, you do have to do a lot of preparation. Uh, you have to be well prepared, and you do have to understand people that think very very differently to you. This being well prepared, uh, this is going to be one of those areas, no doubt. This is uh, one of the keys because if you think about university campuses and being a bottleneck, uh, where everyone who is going to be shaping the future is likely to be going through a university campus, and so they're all going through there and they're being influenced by all of those. Uh, discussions and arguments and uh, even the weight of peer pressure and the cancel culture, all of that shaping individuals. So what is it do you think has to happen for Christians to begin to to win back the upper hand in shaping the narrative? Or ought we not to be trying to shape the narrative? What are your thoughts here? How do you get a winning position back on side? Oh, um, well, I think this is not a comment that's particular to universities. It's just a comment about a comment about someone's Christian life. I think that the quality of your Christian life and the quality of your relationship with God is is ultimately the most important thing. And if you, um, the more committed you are to Him, uh, He shows you what your gifts are. He leads you in the way that that you should be led. And so I think that's an absolute that's a very firm foundation that everyone has to focus on if they want to do anything. Uh, you know, as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You, you want to do things with God's strength. Um, but as far as um, uh, engaging with other people on campus, I think just that, that phrase, the truth in love, uh, comes to me again and again and again. You know, you part of the truth side of it is is being well-prepared, understanding people. Um, And I'd like to say that when you engage with someone who's not a Christian and who has a sort of thought-out position against Christianity, you often find, as I have, that you realise what a strong position you do have as a Christian. You do have good reasons for thinking the things that you do and believing the things that you do. And you find that other people have weaknesses in their positions that they don't admit unless they're in a a pretty detailed discussion. So 
Um, it can be an encouragement to your own faith to to take a step out and and talk to someone and suffer all the awkwardness of not knowing the right thing to say at the right time and thinking five minutes later, I should have said this, being baffled by a question, being unable to answer it, and going and finding an older and wiser Christian who's faced those same things before. All that can be a growing experience um, and it can be a very encouraging experience. A real wisdom in what you share, because when you talk about uh, you know who you are on campus becoming more important, uh, your testimony, we oftentimes talk about uh, the testimony of Christian believers. That's to do with your character. It's to do with uh, the way you handle yourself, uh, whether you're winning the debate or losing the debate. Mm. But it's also mm. going to have, you know, focus on scholarship. And I mean, you've gone through significant, you know, academic development and you've developed ideas and you've become uh, agile in the way that you can articulate those ideas. Those are the sorts of things very good for some people to aspire to, those who are particularly gifted in those areas. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but however your gifting is, um, you know, I think if you... Uh, the quality of your Christian life will will shape you into the sort of person that can live well in the sphere in which you are in, uh, whether that's academia or anywhere else. Mm. What about taking a risk? Because sometimes people will sit back and they'll be spectators to the challenges that are going on campus. Uh, others will be more inclined to roll up their sleeves and uh, get involved in the rough and tumble of it all. Uh, what are your thoughts about taking risks? Yeah, I when I was invited to join uh, Robert Menzies College as a visiting scholar, which just means, by the way, that I live there and get to know the students and run the Socratic Club. I still have a full-time job elsewhere. Um, I was a little nervous about it. It is strange for someone my age to go back and live among uh, students and a campus, and that was a that was a bit of a scary. Um, proposition for me um, but actually um, one of your listeners a friend of mine called Julie had encouraged me to uh, take more risks for God and so um, I felt I should try and do that um, and it has been really good I think a lot of a lot of the time when you take risks uh, God provides what you need um, and well, he always provides what you need, but you sometimes don't feel he's providing it quickly enough or, or whatever, but he does. He's faithful, and you grow through it, and I've, I've had a wonderful time there, um, and I've also had uh, some difficult times as well. So I think, I think um, you know, you only have one life to, uh, to do what you can for God and enjoy your relationship with him, so I think it is worth taking risks. There are such things as foolish risks. There, there are. Um, you have to know yourself well enough to know what your gifts are. You have to ask other people what your gifts are. Um, but um, you, you can take risks, and whatever happens, God will teach you through them. And uh, one course, risk that I, yeah, go on. I was going to say, and of course, uh, risk is another word for faith. Uh, stepping out and taking mm. a risk, stepping out and uh, having faith in God for your next step. Hey, let's take a call. Lawrence is in Perth, Western Australia. Hey, Lawrence, welcome along. Oh, yes, thank you for this morning. Um, you guys mentioned Jesus before Pilate, and um, 
he had the authority to call down myriads of angels back then. So Jesus was in control of that situation, even though it didn't look like it. And I've heard um, the contrast um, from another speaker on uh, radio there, Jeff Vines. He mentioned something about uh, the diadem from the Greek and Stephanos from the Greek. And the diadem tends to relate to secular authority, which is allowed by God, whereas the Stephanos authority is more of a godly authority related to Christian martyrdom. Is that um, a question that I can ask, or is it am I out of line with that? Uh, well, uh, let's check uh, with our guest. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> I'm not familiar with that distinction. I'm sorry. I can't I can't do justice to the question. If you can explain um uh what you mean just using English words, I, I could have a crack. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so um governments um are allowed by God through his authority on earth, and that's a secular uh-huh. authority. Yeah, whereas um, Christian authority uh, can come through strongly through martyrdom, if you know what I mean. So that's a witness to the world as well. Yeah, so there's the two different uh-huh. authorities do, um, the, that I understand from uh, what I was trying to ask. Right. Uh, yeah, no, that, okay, now I understand. And I think that would be, um, that's completely in keeping with uh, Jesus' uh, teaching that whoever wants to be great must be the servant of all. And so... Um, Secular authority is often about jockeying for position and power to lord it over people, whereas Christian authority can take all sorts of forms. It can take that kind of authority in a secular sphere if you're a leader of an organisation, but it can also go all the way to being martyred. So I agree with you. Lawrence, anything further to add? Oh, no, that's good. Thanks for your uh, guest this morning and what you've been talking about. Okay. Well, we Thank probably, you. we won't take any more calls because we're running a little short on time here. Uh, let me ask you, as we just wrap a few things up here, uh, how we talk to those with whom we don't agree. Uh, have you got a few practical tips for us, uh, Gordon? Uh, you know, if you're getting into those uh, arguments that could get out of control, how do you conduct yourself? Uh, all right. Uh, number one is courtesy, um, and courtesy when things go wrong as well. You mentioned uh, that sometimes you're in an argument and things go badly for you. I think how you behave when things go badly is just as important as how you behave when things go well. So courtesy is one thing. Listening is another thing. Always use questions. If somebody says something, don't assume that you understand what they mean, especially if they upset you and what they say. Ask them questions. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Is this what you mean? And try and rephrase it back to them. And um, pray for them. And um, I think, yeah, I think just have the confidence that God will give you what you need uh, at the right time. And uh, look at that model, the Socratic model, the Socratic club, uh, no matter what, uh, if you're in a university, uh, whether it be a secular university or a Christian college university, it uh, might be worth looking at that to see how you can get those sorts of debates going and, and actually be involved in those things uh, sharpens us, doesn't it, as uh, believers and sharpens our ability to be defenders of our faith. Hey, time has come to a close. I want to thank you, Gordon, for taking some time to chat. I always enjoy our conversations. But let me just mention your book. Uh, Some listeners might want to get a hold of your book. It'll be the main way that they can really uh, hear more of your heartbeat. Uh, The book that you wrote and just released just a couple of years ago is called Western Fundamentalism. 
and uh, for listeners to get a hold of it. It was actually shortlisted for the Australian Christian Book of the Year Awards last year. But you might want to get a hold of that book, Western Fundamentalism, Democracy, Sex and the Liberation of Mankind. Uh, Gordon is an Associate Professor at University of Technology in Sydney, also visiting scholar at the Robert Menzies College in Sydney. Uh, You might want to connect with him through either of those organisations too. Uh, It's just wonderful getting your insights. Gordon, thanks so much for being with us once again today on 2020. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.